Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the aquarium. I'm Jerry Schubel, and it's great to have all of you here this evening. For those of you here in person, please silence your cell phones for the next hour and try to refrain from tweeting. And for those of you who are watching online, I guess you can do anything you want, but welcome. <laughs> it's, a, it's a real pleasure tonight to welcome back Andy Policano, Professor Dr. Andrew Policano. He's a former dean and professor emeritus of economics and public policy at UC Irvine's Mirage uh, School of Business, and he was the person who was successful in getting the business school named in a, in a new building. Before that, he was dean of the Wisconsin School of Business, and before that, he was the dean of social and behavioral sciences at Stony Brook. He uh, got his bachelor's degree from Stony Brook, and his got his PhD in economics from Brown University. He was here a couple of years ago when he talked about his first book, which, <clears throat> which was The uh, Public No More, A New Path to Excellence for America's Public Universities. And it was like about the changing in the funding of public universities from public funded to public assisted. And his second book is from this is a wonderful book, I highly recommend it. From Ivory Tower to Glass House, and it's about what's happening in universities and how they're going to change in the future, and it really is a fascinating book. He serves on the board of directors of two public companies. He's also a trustee for the Payton and Rigel Mutual Funds. He's been chair of the board of directors for the Association to Advance Collegiate Schools of Business, and he was honored by them with the Lifetime Service Award. <clears throat> Andy and I are, are friends, and we were colleagues for a short time at Stony Brook, and I can say he's one of the most visionary leaders in higher education that I have known, and he's made a great difference in all three of these public universities. Please join me in welcoming Andy Policano. Thank you so much, Jerry. You know, it's really a pleasure to be here tonight, and... Uh, and last time when Jerry invited me, uh, I, I said to him, you do know my book is not about fish. And uh, he said, no, no, still come. But Jerry, as you mentioned, we were colleagues at Stony Brook, and Jerry was provost at Stony Brook when he attracted me to the university there as dean of social and behavioral sciences. And I was really very excited because Jerry is such a visionary leader. And he said to me, you know, Yandy, you know, you've got to come to Stony Brook. You'll love it so much you'll never want to leave. And he left a year later. But, you know, these things happen. <laughs> But the truth is, uh, Jerry taught me quite a bit in even one year, in that one year, because our budget was cut 10% that year. And yet Jerry somehow figured out how to be innovative. He, we were doing new things, even though we were facing such budget crises. And he had a way to keep up faculty morale and so on. And I thought, boy, that's something. And it, it really helped me, because going through that period at Stony Brook really helped throughout the rest of my career in understanding how to manage through budgetary stripe and stuff. So I, Really appreciate it. And all you need to do is to walk around this aquarium, which we just did, Pam and I, my wife and I, and our 14-month-old grandson. We had a great time at the aquarium about a couple of weeks ago. And I got to tell you, what's happened to this aquarium since Jerry took over has been surpassed anybody's expectations. And this new addition looks fabulous. Let's give Jerry a little round of applause. <laughs> oh, Amazing. <clears throat> so tonight, as Jerry mentioned, I'm going to talk a little bit about the future of public higher education. There's a lot of things we can talk about. 
there's so many issues facing higher education today. We're going to kind of focus a little bit on how much will it cost and who will pay, and a few other issues. Jerry mentioned uh, part of this is based on my first book, which is co-authored by Gary Fetke. Gary was interim president at the University of Iowa when we wrote that book. And then the second book from Ivory Tower to Glass House is a more pragmatic extension of this book that helps academic leaders understand the role they need to play in this current environment and the skills that they need to have. And we'll talk about both of these to come. But let me tell you a little bit of the background about how we got into this. It was about uh, 10 years or so ago that Gary and I were having lunch together. And we realized that between the two of us, we collectively had over 50 years of experience as academic leaders at five different universities. And we were thinking about uh, how many meetings we had been at at our university campuses that were with the university president and provost and all the other deans where the CFO from the campus walked in and said, the state budget is in arrears and woe is us. And everybody got very depressed around the table and said, what are we gonna do now? We thought it's about time for public universities to take hold of their own fate. They've gotta act very differently in the current environment than they did in the past. So he said, let's write an op-ed or two. So we wrote this piece in Business Week and we talked about the business school model because business schools for many years have been very entrepreneurial. They've developed programs like an executive MBA and programs for the community, which the community would pay for, they would collect tuition, and they were becoming more and more independent. We said, you know, universities have to act pretty much the same way. And then uh, what happened was, uh, and I also wrote this piece in the Financial Times on adapting to financial realities, and then 2008 hit with the Great Recession. And what we had were some university presidents who tried to be very innovative and said we have to transform the university and we have to transform it very, very rapidly. So we have this external constituency influencing these presidents to say we need abrupt change. And then we had the faculty. And the faculty saying we don't like change. We're resisting the change. And so five university presidents were either let go or voluntarily resigned in a short space of time. And the reason that happened was they were trying to be very innovative and things just didn't go very, very well. So Gary and I wrote this piece called The Precarious Profession of University Presidents, where we talked about the fact if you try to be too innovative right now, your tenure in office is likely to be very small. So you have to do this very diplomatically. I got a lot of emails after that uh, article, but the best one was from Donna Shalala, who was president of the University of Miami, and she took a lot of time to write me her reaction, which was, right on. That was her whole email. And so um, after we started writing these, we realized this is a much bigger issue than we could actually capture in just these op-eds. And that's what led us to write Public No More. Now uh, our uh, economists in the audience here will know if you read Public No More, it's written as a, uh, an economics, kind of a text almost. It's an application of microeconomic theory to public universities. And it's written in academic ease. And so I decided to follow that with the, from ivory tower to glass house, which is a much more pragmatic view of what needs to take place in the current environment. But as we were writing about these issues, a lot of people approached us and said, uh, do any of these issues or do most of them apply to privates as well? And Gary and I thought about it for a while. And we said, well, you know, we ought to write something about how the private model works as well. But we didn't need to because Ron Ehrenberg, who is a chaired full professor at Cornell, probably one of the leading experts in the economics of higher education in the country, decided to write a review essay on our book, Public No More, published in the Journal of Economic Literature. And in that essay, he actually extended our model. Not only did he write this review, but he extended it to private universities as well. 
So he took away that piece of work for us. So we're very pleased that Ron had did that. Okay, so let's now start with some of the disruptive forces, the disruptive forces that higher education is facing today. What are the things that uh, kind of drive us crazy every day over public universities? And the first one, which is kind of interesting, is global competition. So it used to be that students looking for the best universities in the world would always apply to the United States. Today, students from the United States are applying all over the world for undergraduate and for graduate education. A lot of competition for students. And also, globally, what's happened to the research atmosphere has exploded. So there's great research now being done at universities throughout the world. So not only are we competing for students, the top students, we're also competing for the top faculty and we're competing for research dollars with universities from around the world. So global competition, very important. Next, of course, student, student expense, student debt. And you know, when you look at these kinds of questions, you then come up to what is the return to higher education? Is it worth the expense? So the return to higher education, waning taxpayer support, which we all know about. And as legislators take away funding from state universities, they then also say, but we're not going to let you raise tuition. So they take away the funding, and they want to keep tuition low at the same time. Increasing demands for accountability, especially here in California. You know, as the state's taken away money from Cal State and UC, and so now we're using more money that we're creating on our own, and the legislature still wants to control how we spend every dollar, even though they're not giving us that money anymore. So increasing demands for accountability. <clears throat> Digital transformation, distance, education, the arrival of MOOCs and the arrival of hybrid courses and distance transforming the learning environment. Then okay. finally, there are many other issues, diversity, inclusion, topping that list, but freedom of speech now, all of these issues are now coming to a real head at most university campuses. So if we were to discuss all of these tonight, it would take about three days, so we won't do that. We'll probably focus mostly on the top three and uh, talk about how the environment's permanently changed based on these particular influences. So that's where we're sort of heading. Start off with the first one. Is college too expensive? Okay. So uh, we were just chatting. Uh, how many of you think college is too expensive? <laughs> right? And I know you do. Uh, how many of you think college is about right? Probably pretty well priced. And how many of you don't think? No. Okay. <laughs> so let's take a look at this particular question. So this is kind of a trick question because when we talk about the expense of a product or a service, we have to differentiate between the price and the cost. Okay, so the, and the cost of providing an education is equal to the cost of the faculty, the staff, and the operations. Right? So the first question we'd like to ask is what's happened to the cost of higher education over the, the last few years? And price, of course, isn't equal to tuition. But if you take a look at the cost per student, in fact, it's actually been restrained. If you look at the cost per student, in two-year public, two public colleges, it's actually fallen by about $1,000 per year over the last decade. If you look at the University of California and ask the same question, you'll find out that the amount of money spent per student at the University of California has fallen by over 20% since 1991. So now that I'm telling you the cost has been restrained, the natural question is, why has tuition risen? So let's take a look at what's behind this. 
The answer lies in this challenge faced by four-year public universities as an example. If we take a look at the average tuition per year charged by four-year public universities in the United States, the average is $9,970 per year. By the way, just keep in mind, is that too expensive? Don't answer it yet, but let's think about it. But in any event, the average tuition, $9,970 per year. So the next question is, how much does it cost to educate that one FTE student per year? And the answer is about $15,500. So how many of you would like to run this business? <laughs> Every time you sell a product, it costs you $15,500, but you're only getting back $9,970. Well, how did universities survive for so many years? Because of the state subsidy, primarily, but also gifts and other entrepreneurial activities helped to make up that difference. The real problem that's happened recently is that since 2008, state support for public universities has fallen by over 20%. So now you've got to think about, you know, how are universities making up that difference? <clears throat> so if we take a look around any campus, you could look at Cal State, you could use, look at UC Irvine, any campus, you can always find ways in which we can lower costs, right? But the reality is the cost issue is not the main issue. We can always find ways to lower costs, but the real debate is not about the cost of higher education. It's really about who should pay for it, right? Should it be students and their parents? Should it be donors? Or should it be the taxpayer? Until, the until very recently, taxpayers were paying the brunt of public higher education in the United States. And this who's paying has shifted dramatically. So now when we talk about this, we say, well, you know, if state support is fallen by over 20%, those darn legislators, why aren't they doing a better job to support public higher education? So in order to answer that, always put yourself in the other person's shoes. Now make believe you're all sitting in the legislature, right? And if you are a good economist sitting in the legislature, legislature you're always looking at the marginal benefit of the next dollar that you are going to allocate. So you're sitting there with the next dollar to allocate. Should I allocate that dollar to higher education, or should I allocate it, or would it have a more benefit? Would it have more benefit if I allocated it to something else? Right. So what else might you be allocating it to? Well, what about K through 12 education? Would that be more important? What about healthcare? Maybe that would be more important, especially healthcare for the young and the elderly. Right? Or maybe job training would be more important. Right, if we take some folks who maybe have been thrust out of jobs and re-educate them and retrain them for other jobs, maybe that would be more important. Or should we be allocating that extra dollar to prisons? Now, why would I say prisons? Well, let's take a look. Now, sometimes if you talk to a legislator and you ask them, why don't you support higher education? Oh, no, I'm all for higher education. They'll give you this, all this rhetoric. But the way to really understand how legislators think about higher education is to look at how they've actually acted. That gives you their revealed preference. Look at how they actually have acted. So let's take a look at what's happened to the growth in state general funding for higher education, elementary and second education, and corrections over this period of time. Let's start out with elementary and second education. A 69% increase adjusted for inflation. All right, now think about higher education. Do you think it's higher or lower? Okay, good. 
Lower, 5.6%. And what about corrections? Higher. All right, good guess. Let's take a look. Look at that increase. Amazing, right? What's even more amazing is this. 11 states spend more on prisons than on higher education. Isn't that incredible? But think about the actual dilemma that we're discussing here. Here it is. If we do not spend enough on K through 12 and do that effectively, if those students don't graduate from high school, then what's the probability that they will find a job that can sustain their life? Well, if they can't find a way to earn enough money, what do they resort to? Crime. Where do they end up? Prison. Today, think about this. Today, it is more expensive to send someone to jail than to Yale. Isn't that something? So we got ourselves in the sort of conundrum where we're not doing a good job in K through 12, we're not supporting higher education, we end up putting all the money into corrections. That's the area, or a lot of the money into corrections. That's what we've gotten ourselves into. So let's see what the implication of all of this has been on the percent of higher education expenses that are now covered by students and their parents. We go back to the mid-80s when the percent of higher education expenditures borne by students was around 23%. Now we go nicely along and then we hit this period. This blue period in here, this blue rectangle, is a recession. So think about again, put yourself back in the legislature. You're a legislator. Recession comes along, all of a sudden you have no money. You've got to make cuts. You look around your budget to see where there's large piles of money that you can cut. Where is there a large pile of money you can cut? Higher education, you cut it. You cut higher education, what happens to the student percent of expenses, it rises. Well, then we go through a recovery and notice that that percent stays calm here. In fact, it even falls a little bit, but it never comes back to where it was before that recession. We hit another recession, goes back up. We hit another recession, it goes back up. And what's the long-term trend over a long period of time? Over this period of time, the student portion has increased by over 70%. So what is the revealed preference of the legislator as you look at this chart? Here it is. Whenever states cut funding, what they are saying is that they believe students should pay more. That's what they're telling you. Students should pay more and society should pay less. That's the message. But not all students are paying more. Tuition has risen, but not for everyone. So let's take a look at what we mean by that. Because the actual price that students pay is something like the sticker price on a new car. So think about it this way. How many of you go into a new car lot, look at the sticker price, and pay that price? If you do, please don't raise your hand. <laughs> so the actual price is equal to published tuition less the amount of financial aid that does not have to be paid back. And last year, in 2016 I should say, about 70% of all students attending college received some financial aid that they did not have to pay back. So notice that the actual price is not published tuition, 
But for many, many students, it's published tuition less some amount of financial aid. Now, how many of you know about the California Blue and Gold Program? Have you know about this program? You do. Good. You should know about it right now. You should know about it. Her uh, son or daughter? Son is going to college next year. So she's investigated all of this, which is great. I'll call on you in a minute. The California Blue and Gold Program says that if you fill out all the financial aid forms and you qualify for financial aid, and if your family income is less than $80,000 a year, you pay no tuition. Right? Isn't that amazing? You pay no tuition. Again, if you fill out all the financial aid forms and you qualify for financial aid and your income is less than $125,000 a year, you're going to receive some financial aid. So now if you walk around the, any University of California campus, interview 10 students, what you're going to find is that four of those students pay no tuition. 40% of the students at the University of California pay zero tuition. Okay, so even though tuition has gone up, it hasn't gone up for everyone. And by the way, just as another interesting fact, about 40% of the students who attend the University of California are first-generation college students. Now, there may not be a one-to-one -one correlation between this 40% and that 40 but you get the idea. The University of California is very accessible to students who qualify for the University of California but don't have enough income to afford it. So you have 40% paying no tuition. Okay? And again, it's helping first-generation students. In fact, UCI was just recognized as one of the top universities in the country for helping first-generation students move out of poverty. So it's still, even though published tuition is rising, still actually fulfilling the mission of access of a public university. <clears throat> so let's take a look a little bit more carefully at what students actually pay. And now let's take a look at two-year publics, four-year publics, and four-year privates. This data is available at the college, from the College Board. I'm assuming you've looked at the College Board, which has all of this data in there. But <clears throat> if you look at published tuition for two-year publics, again, this is an average. So remember, some is lower, some are higher. This is the average. But the average grants in financial aid is $3,900. So think about this. Average tuition is $35.70. Average financial aid that does not have to be paid back is $3,900. So average net tuition is in fact negative. Right? So how do you interpret that? Students, especially students who are in the po at the poverty level, are not only receiving tuition, but they're receiving a supplement to help with books and fees and so on. Okay? So I love this particular line because you've heard many politicians get up in front of groups when they're running for election and part of their platform is, I promise when I'm elected to make two-year colleges free. Well, they're already free. Don't you love politicians who promise things that are already true? So again, that's on average. There's some folks who have to pay more, some folks who are paying less, but that's on average. What about four-year publics? We mentioned before the average published tuition is $9,970. Average grants, $5,839. Subtract this from that, and we get net tuition, about $4,131 a year. So now I'll come back to the question. Is tuition at $4,131 a year? Is that too expensive? Don't answer just yet. Let's take a look at four-year privates. The average published tuition is $34,740. The average grants and financial aid, which you should be getting, is 20,210. 
So the net tuition is 14,530 for privates. So we're taking a look at the actual cost on average again. Remember, these are averages, so they're deceiving. So you have people at both ends of the spectrum. People are paying full freight, people are paying less. But these are the numbers that are most relevant. And uh, in fact, in the Wall Street Journal just last week, there's an article about privates that are lowering their tuition to match uh, in-state publics. And the reason they're doing that is because they're already very close. Let's see, if the average is 14,500 here, and the average published tuition here is 99.70, they're not that far off, right? So if they're giving this aid, they can say, well, we'll match this price, right? And then they're not that far off from what's already taking place. But the problem is they're not getting people to apply because people look at this number. And so they're trying to advertise that number instead of this number. Very interesting what's going on right now. So <clears throat> when we come back to the question now, is college too expensive? We just talked about the average four-year published tuition being this and the net um, tuition being that. And here I want to just give you the ranges. So you know that if you're applying to a public university, it depends where you live. So in a state like Wyoming, you're going to pay very little. And New Hampshire is very high. Right? So there's a wide variety of tuitions for public universities. <coughs> but the net tuition goes from a negative number up to 9730. Let me list here one more institution and give you the numbers there. The average tuition for this institution is 11,410. And you can see the range there. Can anyone guess what institution that is? All right, well, let's take a look and see what it is. So when you take a look at this list here, Public universities at 4131, daycare centers at over $11,000. Yeah, I always say the University of California Irvine is really a low-priced daycare center. Come on over and drop off your kids, right? Less expensive than that. And so I wrote a little piece uh, about this and some other things in the um, LA Times last year. And overnight, I received 153 emails about that piece. And most of them were saying, yeah, I didn't realize this. Wow, great, great, great. Uh, about 10 or 12 people wrote to me who were just nutty, you know, as they threw those away. But then a bunch of people said, boy, daycare is really expensive. And I said, yeah, you're right. That wasn't quite the point I was making, but yes, <laughs> it is really expensive, and we should do something about that. But when you think about it, is college too expensive? And you take a look at this, well, it's more expensive to send kids to daycare than it is to the University of California, Irvine, for example. Okay. <clears throat> of course, we all know tuition is not the only price that students are paying. They're also paying the price of residential uh, room and board and other fees. And so here's a comparison. Because many times, rich people, not normal middle-income class people, but rich folks will say, you know, I'm paying over $60,000 a year to send my son or daughter to college. And I think that's really exorbitant. And I'll ask, well, what school or university are you sending them to? And they'll say something like Princeton, right? Well, of course, if you're wealthy, and you're sending a child to an elite private, you're going to pay the full freight. Okay? And that could be as much as $66, $500 a year. But if you live in California, you also have the alternative. This person got into Princeton, they're also going to get into UC Irvine. And if you're going to pay the full freight at UC Irvine, you'd be paying this much half the price. So in one sense, if you're in the upper income class and you choose 
Princeton over Irvine. That's your choice, right? But you still have this choice. Right? In other words, if you choose to buy a Bentley instead of a Toyota, that's your choice, right? right? And so we have a wide variety of, uh, of prices that you can choose from. And by the way, when people say room and board is awfully expensive, the other thing I always point out is, would your child actually eat if they weren't in college? Right? You still have to pay something, right? Now living at home would be less expensive, but still, I mean, there's still some cost that that, that uh, student would have to pay whether or not they're living at home. Okay, <clears throat> and some of the facts, uh, average net tuition is negative at two-year publics, is 4,100 at four-year publics. Room and board are major expensive, but lower income students pay little, if any, tuition. And lower income students many times will live at home. And at UC Irvine, many times they'll live at home their first year, their freshman year, and then they'll come onto campus. And our financial aid office will work with those families and help them pay some of that room and board if they are in that kind of category. So lower income students have accessibility. But the big point that we want to make here is that there's been a shift in who's paying for higher education. It used to be all taxpayers were paying. And there was a subsidy that was fairly significant given to public universities. Today, that subsidy has waned. And today, who's paying are upper middle income and upper income families sending their children to college. They're paying the full freight. They're actually paying above the cost of their child's education to be able to subsidize students in the lower income groups. That's what's happening. Now, you might argue, is that equitable? Is that fair? Well, that's an open-ended question, right? But that's really what's taking place underneath it, and that was one of the points I was making in that op-ed in the LA Times. All right, let's now switch over to debt, okay? And let's talk a little bit, first of all, some of the facts. Student debt now exceeds 1.5 trillion, pretty substantial number. And over a third of individuals between the ages of 18 and 29 now have student loans. So how serious is this problem? Who's at fault and what should we do about it? Okay, let's take a look at those issues. First of all, it's interesting to take a look at the burden. Who, sh who has the burden of this debt? So this was kind of a fun chart to take a look at from the Pew Research Center, which said if you look across all borrowers and ask what is the median amount of the student loan, the answer is 17,000. For those folks who have some debt who have less than a bachelor's degree, about 10,000, and you can see the others. But the question I had was, uh, you know, who's really suffering under this? Uh, who has more than, uh, or how many of these students have more than $100,000 worth of debt? So I took a look at that. It turns out that about 7% of all these borrowers have, most, have over $100,000 in debt. And we think of that as a pretty steep number, right? right? That's a pretty big number. But who are those students, do you think? Say it out loud. Very good. Medical school and? Lawyers, right? Did you have debt when you came out of uh, law school? No, but you were, you were one of the fortunate ones because most students do have to borrow to go to law school, right? So these folks are very likely to be able to pay it back, although not all. We'll talk about that in a minute. So the next question I had was, well, let's see how much of a burden this $17,000 debt is. Suppose that we think of this $17,000 loan over a 20-year term, which many student loans are, say it's 6%, the monthly payment is $122 a month. So, is that too heavy a burden? I think you have the right answer. The answer is, it depends. 
And uh, by the way, the answer to most of the questions I'm asking is it depends. So um, let's take a look at that for a moment. Let's go back to law school for a second. And there's a very interesting uh, case that was discussed in the New York Times a couple of years ago with Florida Coastal School of Law. And I found this to be astounding. 93% of their graduating class had student loans. And again, maybe that's surprising, maybe not, because a lot of students need to borrow to go to law school. But what was astounding was the amount of loan, $163,000. And the fact was that not many of them were finding good jobs. So the issue is, who's at fault here? Is it the law school? Is it the student? Or both? What do you think? Law school? Student? Both. Good. Both. And let's dig a little bit more deeply into that. If you look at the website for the law school, what you're going to find is that they admit mostly students who scored in the bottom quartile of the LSAT. And all you need to do is look at the LSAT website to find out that if you score in the bottom quartile, that's a very significant predictor that you will not pass the bar. Now, what are the chances of getting a nice job if you don't pass the bar? Pretty low. Zero was the answer, right? So these students really are coming into something they should have known this before they went there. So the students are certainly at fault. They should have understood the employment possibilities before they entered, and they should understand the ramifications of taking out these loans. So let's transfer this now back to the high school senior or to the college freshman. And here's something that would be very, very critical for every high school senior or college freshman to be asking themselves. What are my passions? Where are my talents? Where are my motivations? What careers match my passions, talents, and motivations? What kind of education do I need to pursue those careers? Maybe it's a two-year technical school. Maybe it's a community college. Maybe it might be a four-year college. What, what do I need for that? And how much will my education cost? And how will I be able to pay for it? What is my earning potential if I pursue my career? Right? And then finally, if I take out a loan, what will my monthly payment be? And will I be, for, will I be able to afford to pay back? Seem reasonable? Should we expect every high school student to be this savvy? Some doubters out here. Can we expect high school students to be this savvy? My answer is yes. Because we run a program, I have a center which I founded and directed for many years uh, while I was dean at the UC Irvine, called LifeFest. And every summer, we bring in underprivileged students for one week, a residential, and we have them answer all those questions. And they choose a career based on their passions. Then they decide what kind of education they need, and then they cost that out, figure out how they're going to pay for it. Then they develop uh, a plan for life, a financial plan for life. I'll give you a quick example. First thing we do is because these are students whose parents have never gone to college, right? Parents have not gone to college. First generation college students, right? So the first thing we want to make sure they understand is what happens if they don't go to college, right? Here's their earning potential, right, with a high school diploma. Very important to continue on because the return to a bachelor's degree over a high school degree has held steady at 15% a year over the last decade. It's a big return to doing that. So the first thing is to convince them, make sure you take all the right classes in high school, and we guide them through that so that you are heading toward college. Right. Next. Wait a minute now. That's good to go to college, 
but take a look at the earning potential of different majors. So some majors actually earn more than 15%, which is the average. Some are going to earn less. We show them what they are. And then we say, but look, if you're passionate about the fine arts, this doesn't mean you shouldn't do that. What it does mean, though, is you need a financial plan that's going to make that work. Right? And so we work through them. So here's an example of a student who chose to be a healthcare social worker. Right? Not the above 15%, but in the other category. And so she looked at the data we provided. What is the probability of employment? How much will I earn when I start? How much would I earn mid-career? How much will I earn at my top potential? And then she drew out this kind of spreadsheet. This would be my mid-career earnings, my monthly salary, all my deductions. So at the end of the day, I would have $4,100 per month to spend. How will I spend that money? She did her spreadsheet. Here's how I would allocate that money. And one of the important items here is Now, we don't hold any one of those. We follow them through. And over 90% of the students who have been through that program are now in college or college age. We follow through with them every year. We bring them back once a year and just see where they are. We don't commit them to what they said here. But now they know how to do that for any path they might choose. So we started a financial literacy program at UC Irvine. The chancellor is now supporting it. We're offering it to about 1,000 freshmen every fall. Every college, every high school ought to be doing this. Right? And it will keep students from taking on debt they can't afford. For the students who already have this debt, there are now many programs that are helping them through the payments, linking their payments to their income, spreading it out, spreading out the terms, so making it affordable for them to pay it back. So that's how we're getting through the student debt issues right now. All right, well, we've talked a lot about these issues now. Let's talk about how universities are adapting, right? So lots of things going on that are affecting universities. How are universities adapting? Now we have a transforming model taking place. When Gary and I started talking about these issues 10 years ago, we had very few people who were listening. Right? Today, everyone's listening. Some universities are well along this path, others are lagging behind. But here's the model. We have to operate more like distinguished private universities, right? which means we're less dependent on taxpayer support. Doesn't mean we're giving up accessibility. Right? Notice I showed before, there's still a lot of access. But we need now a competitive positioning strategy. What's different about us that students would choose us, top faculty would choose us, that research dollars would flow in our direction? And what's a sustainable financial plan? What sustainable financial plan do we have that allows us to move forward? This is a very important part of this model, which Gary and I discussed in public no more. But remember that what we're talking about is higher published tuition and higher financial aid to ensure access. Okay? So the model we've talked about and shown before. Uh, now notice, if these are the things that the university needs to accomplish, this requires a very different type of leader than existed 20 to 25 years ago. Because in the past, academic leaders were individuals who had gained prominence in their own academic area. So they're very smart teachers, very smart researchers, and people thought, boy, these are smart people. We'll just put them as chair of a department. And what they did was lead the academic mission, make sure that faculty were doing great work. Right? They weren't worried about budgets. 
most of the time, they didn't even know what the budget looked like. They didn't know whether their department was spending more than it was earning, nothing. Not at all. Today, that's no longer acceptable. Today, that department head or chair has to be able to manage a budget, has to be able to manage people. The dean today needs to be an external dean. Needs to be out in the community, Jerry Schubel type. Always out in the community, always talking to the community, looking to raise funds and so on. Lots of different skills. Faculty members were never trained to do any of this. They're trained to do research, not even really much trained to teach. They had to learn that on his own, but basically trained in a very different fashion from what the leader needs to have today. And that's what this book, From Ivory Tower to Glass House, is all about. What those skills are and how to pick them up. So now let's talk about, suppose that we just ignore all of this. We, let's say we're a public university and we've decided none of this makes any sense. We're just going to continue on the way we've continued on in the past. So let's take a look at some of the dangers of doing that. Well, one of the ways to look at it is through some rankings. And you know, I don't really like rankings very much because they distort a lot of things. But it's hard to ignore the trends that some of these rankings are telling us over a long space of time. So if we look at US News, who ranks the best universities in the United States every year, and go back to 1988. In 1988, three of the top 10 universities were public universities. Last week, they published the 2009 rankings, 19, 2019 rankings. How many public universities do you think were in the top 10 this year? I heard zero, I heard two, this is the price is right. What else do you have? Zero, two, let's take a look. None. All right, let's go to the top 20. How many public universities do you think there were in the top 20? Two. Two. None. None in the top 20. Berkeley was one of the three here. 2008 hit, big cuts in public spending, 20, 30, 40% cuts in their budget, right? And how did Berkeley react? They said, we are Berkeley. The money will come back. The state will revert. They'll realize their errors. They will give it back to us. Of course, it never happened. By 2016, Berkeley was running $150 million structural deficit. They've been cutting ever since. Right? So what happened to Berkeley? Not only did they fall out of the top 10, they just fell out of the top 20. At the same time, however, UC Irvine was making dramatic changes. And this year, UC Irvine was ranked seventh in the nation. Of course, that's great marketing by our team. It's 33rd overall, but seventh among publics. And this is the highest ranking we've ever had. But we made some very serious changes in the way we operated at UC Irvine. So you can see the danger of complacency. If you're not reacting to these forces. It's just like running any business, right, Dennis? Any business. There are these external factors, you react to them. Right? You become competitive. If you don't react to them, what happens? You start to fall away. So let's take a look at what's happened to the financial strategy of major universities. And I love Let's bring that forward to 2017, states now funding 12% of their operation, basically a quarter of what it was in the past. Tuition and fees, you can see the dramatic change, tuition and fees jumping, state funding falling. 
Now, you know that, <clears throat> you know that the mascot for UC Irvine is an anteater? So I tried to cut up an anteater and do the same thing. It just, just didn't look the same. So I went on the University of California uh, website trying to find something similar to this to explain what's happened in the University of California. And this is what I found. So that's the way we do it. University of Texas does it this way, nice and neat. University of California does it that way. So let me make this a little bit simpler for you. Take out the intervening years. This bar here represents the amount of spending per student, per FTE student. So the total amount here in 1990 was $24,400, right? And then these chunked numbers here represent where the money is coming from. And let's look at the first one, the deep blue here. $19,100 back in 1990, $7,160. As we jump to 2016, about a what is that? About a $12,000 decrease per student. At the same time, tuition revenue per FT rose by over 57%, but notice it rose only by let's say about you know $2,600. So this is going by $3,600. So this is going up by a little over 3,000. This is falling by 12,000, and there's a big mismatch there, losing all this revenue, not making it up through tuition, and so the result, of course, is that expenditure by per student has fallen dramatically. Now some of that decrease in expenditure is reflecting increases in efficiency. Okay, we're cutting costs and so on. But that's significant a decrease also is showing a decrease in quality. Quality is also hurting by this decrease. So there's two things you're learning from this, this shift in spending, who's, what, where this money is coming from for expenditures, and also you realize that this cut in student funding has got to affect quality. So what needs to happen next? We need strategic positioning. So I don't know if any of you have ever looked at the mission statements of universities. I mean, do you know the mission statement for Cal State, for the university as a whole? Just the mission statement. Global education. Probably says something like we're going to educate. All right, support the workforce. We're going to educate the next generation of leaders, right? right? And the problem with all of that, and most university statements say that, the problem with all that is it's very, very broad. Supporting the workforce means we support everything. Everything that happens in the workforce, we support it, right? So a positioning strategy is not we do everything, right? Which is what those statements sort of imply. It's not we serve everyone, again, which is what that statement implies. And it's not we like every idea, right? So what's the problem with a mission or vision statement that says that? Well, this is supposed to provide some direction. But a plan that promises everything prioritizes nothing. So now, how does that hurt the university? Think about it this way. Over 45 years, I've served on an infinite number of faculty committees and senate committees where proposals are coming through for new programs, new ideas, and so on. And all that time, very, very rarely, maybe one to two percent of the time, have we ever said no. We approve 98% of everything that comes through. Why? Because our vision and mission says we like every idea. Right? These are faculty, these are smart people, these are good ideas, we, we like them. All right? So here's a great example. I was serving on a Senate committee for three years where every proposal that came through was approved, right? every one of them, even though I was a dissenter on many of them. Every one of them was approved. Shows you how little effect I have. 
uh, every one of them was approved. And in fact, not only did we approve them all, we actually put back an undergraduate major that we got rid of 10 years earlier, right? Yeah, because it was a good idea, right? We like every good idea, right? So we like every idea, right? So now the problem there is that our scope is very broad. So think about this. If we're approving all of these different things, if you are a freshman and you walk onto the UC Irvine campus and someone says, you have to choose an undergraduate major, how many majors do you think that freshman has a choice between? Hundreds. Over 100. 125 different majors. So when you walk on, almost every UC campus offers more than 100 majors. Right? So to me, this is like The Simpsons. It's like Homer. What do I, there's so many options, it's confusing. Now, what's the problem with that? We love students to have choice, right? Love them to have choice, right? But every one of those majors entails what? An undergraduate advisor. Everyone entails an administrative assistant. Everyone entails a faculty member taken out of the classroom for one, two, or three courses a year. The cost of every major any range is anywhere from $200,000 to $400,000, just the structure. If you offered the courses and took away the major, you'd be saving two to $400,000 per major. Take away 10 of those majors, that's $2 million to $4 million. You know how many faculty members we could hire with that funding and how many more courses we could offer and how much more we can enrich the environment? That administrative structure has become very, very heavy. Okay. And so, because the scope has become so broad, we have this major issue. At the same time, every unit on the campus strives to be top 20 in their research. Research is the most expensive thing we do every university. Universities have refused to prioritize. So what they do is they have a mission statement that says, here are our aspirations, and we want to be top 20 in everything we do. Many top publics say this. But that promise is vacuous. Very few, univers few universities can afford to be top 20 in everything they do. <clears throat> so it's time to prioritize. And some universities are actually doing this now. What areas of the campus are truly distinguished? They should be supported terrifically. What are excellent? That could be. Great. What are good? Fine. What are good enough? Which means we don't have to spend all that extra funding we would need to spend if we were building them to a top research department. Okay? So here again we can ask, what happens if you don't do that? Okay? So 2008 hits. And with that, I just took a look at three top public universities. Well, two top publics and one in the third tier. NSF research rankings. What happened at Wisconsin? Got cut, cut, cut by the state. Continued to operate. They're ranked second in the country in their research by NSF. By 2015, they fell out of the top five. Ohio State was ranked 10th, fell down to 20th. Missouri was 71st, fell down to 85th. Without prioritizing, there's going to be this diminution in quality, and it's going to continue. So what happens if you're not adjusting and the budget falls? So Jerry's been in this position many, many times. So if you're not adjusting to the financial realities and the budget falls, what happens is you have a lot of units around the campus that are not generating enough revenue through number of students in their classes, tuition, grant dollars, donors. They're not generating enough revenue to cover their costs. But you have to cover that, right? The budget has to break even. So where do you get the money from? You go over to the units that are very productive that are high quality, that are generating research dollars, that are generating tuition dollars, and you take the money away from those high quality units and you give it to the low quality units. So keep doing this over a number of years and what happens? The entire quality of the university starts to diminish. 
Why are there no more publics in the top 20? Because private universities, they have high tuition, high financial aid, they have enough money to continue to prioritize and focus on the areas of excellence. Publics have not been able to do that, they have not prioritized, and they're falling out of the top universities in the United States. And that's exactly what's happening. And we see that here through all of this data. So, uh, the top, so let's now just round this up. What do publics need to do, and what will the top publics look like in 10 years? So they'll operate more like privates. They'll have a positioning strategy with well-defined priorities. There are a number of universities doing this right now. If you go on Purdue's website, Mitch Daniels, former governor of Indiana, is now heading up Purdue University, done a fantastic job. They have prioritized missions, uh, mission statement, uh, nice vision statement, controlling costs, positioning statement, very well done. They're becoming financially self-reliant. They'll have a higher tuition, higher financial aid. And the implications for all of us who are thinking about sending kids to college, we have to take a look at the fact that you know, universities, public universities are increasing their non-resident enrollment. Have to. Because if we're holding down resident tuition and we need money, tuition dollars, where are we gonna get it from? So we go out, out of the state. Get those non-residents to pay two to three times the price. So it's a beggar than neighbor policy. University of California goes across the border to Nevada and Arizona, grabs their students and brings them here. Nevada and Arizona grab our students and bring them there. That's just a, a very silly kind of thing going on. And we go for out of, out of country, international students as well. Increase in resident tuition, but mostly for upper middle income and high income family. More cost efficient course delivery, delivery a hybrid mechanism and also strategically chosen areas of distinction. So what's happening now is we're focusing on here are the areas that we're really gonna support full blast. And we're going to teach a lot of areas less expensively on the campus, so we're hiring a lot more of lecturers, part-time faculty. Okay? So now we're building a research core of truly distinguished folks surrounded by a core of teaching faculty. And that's where the future is heading. So let me just stop there and we can open up some questions and have some discussion. Sure. Down here are the implications. You talk about um, um, going outside of the state, non-residence tuition, attracting foreign students. What impact do you think, um, what, two years ago, the F-1 visas issued by the government were like 600,000? Now they're less than 400,000. As a strategy, how would you integrate that into your planning, your yeah. financial plan? Yeah, no, thank you very much. It was a great question. So we now have the uh, federal government fighting against this particular strategy. And in fact, the uh, number of graduate students from other countries entering the United States has shrunk just in one year. And so therefore, for in this particular strategy, forces us to look more for out-of-state students in the United States because we have less availability of doctoral or, or master's students from other countries. But I will say it's a shame that that's happening, right? Because we, we know what, what we have done traditionally is we've taken the top one to 2% of students from around the world for the graduate programs in the United States. And then we train them and we were hoping to keep a certain percentage of those students in the United States to foster our own innovation and our own growth. 
So now we're not even getting them to come here. And so now they'll help foster the growth and innovation in other countries. So it's a real shame that we've been limiting the uh, visas in that way. I enjoyed your lecture. You mentioned there were 11 states that pay more for prisons, and so what are those states, please? Uh, I can get them for you. I have them written down in my bag here. But I should tell you, California is not one of them. All right. But I, I can show you this. I can show you them afterwards. If you want. Yeah, oh, but right on the verge of becoming one of them. Right, right. It's not. Yes, but we are actually, because we're such a big state, we still spend a lot of money on uh, public education. But pretty soon, it's going to reverse. And uh, in California, prisons are more expensive in California than anywhere else in the country. So my cure for that is we should outsource the prisons to India. I mean, I don't see why not. Right? You're helping populate those prisons, <laughs> aren't you, Doug? And Doug is putting <laughs> those people there. In a good way, though, in a good way. I, I work hard at that. <laughs> So I, as I listened to this, particularly towards the end, um, the, and as you know from dinner, uh, community colleges are different. Mm -hmm. um, they aren't building strong research. That's right. Surrounded by uh, part-time instructors. In fact, everybody's surrounded by part-time instructors, right. and that's the model because that's how they can make it work. How, how would you? What would you say about? What, what community colleges do and how do they differ from the four-year model? So community college, are sort of a very good question. A couple of things there. Community college obviously serve an extremely important purpose right? because there is a transition period that many students need to go through to figure out where they're going to be in life. Right? And that, the two-year college serves a great, great role that way. And they are actually competitors for four-year colleges. Think about it this way. Right? Because of what you just said, they have a lot less costly infrastructure. So when you notice their tuition structure is much, much lower than the research for your public colleges. So they can attract a very broad spectrum of students at a very low cost, uh, a very low price because they have a low cost operation. But they're a threat to four-year publics because community colleges are teaching large numbers of students in large classes at the introductory levels. A lot of the tuition revenue that's generated in a four-year public university comes from those introductory uh, courses. So the more and more students that are attracted into community colleges, the less the uh, big four-year public has the ability to build tuition dollars based on those first two years. And so there's a bit of a, it's a great thing for society and it's a bit of a threat for those four-year publics that has to be kind of worked through. If you, oh sorry, go ahead. Very low income. That's right. First in college, and mm -hmm. so from an equity uh, point of view, that's one of the things you want to do. And in fact, not just equity, but from an economic point of view, if we're not graduating 25,000 more by 2030, we're all in trouble because there's so many there. Oh, you're hitting it right now. That yeah. I like to tell people is UC's 225,000 students, CSU's. Uh, <laughs> Right, right. Now, as I said, and I agree with you 100%, very important purpose that community colleges are serving. But again, it's a dynamic market. And so uh, very few people are thinking about the ramifications of community colleges fulfilling this great social mission 
but what is the, how does that impact the foyer and the, or the Cal States and the UCs? You know, we have to think about that very carefully to make sure that all of the units work together and survive. So if you look into your crystal ball 10 years out, after we go through this difficult transition, will public higher education be better off uh, in terms of contributing to society, educating students, contributing to research? What Boy, do you think? That, that's a tough question, I'll tell you. But I tell you this, that if you take a look at some of the universities that are making this transformation, they're doing a great job. Because what they've done is in order to develop their positioning strategy, they've rallied with their faculty, their students, their staff, their alumni, and their external constituents to define the critical areas that are societal problems right now. So think about it this way. It could be the environment. It could be the water problems. It could be the ocean. Uh, it could be cybersecurity or terrorism. And they're listing these issues. Right? And then they're saying, where is our expertise on this campus? What are we really good at? They're choosing three to five, it could be applied health, three to five of those priorities, and they're defining those priorities in the vision and the mission of the university. That's really exciting. And then all of the units on the campus know now what's important. They know what the areas are that are being prioritized. They know where the funding is going to go. And now they rally behind those areas. And if you choose an area like cybersecurity, the social sciences, it's not just computer science and engineering, it's the social sciences, the business school. Lots of people, if you choose applied health, almost everyone on the campus can have a role in that. And so that's what's really exciting. And that's what I find if the visionary leaders that we often talk about are doing those kinds of things. Purdue, take a look at their website. They're doing that. And that's making it very exciting for universities. Sometime you ought to take a look at Ben-Gurion University. Because when that was started, they had the aspiration to be a great university like Jerusalem or Haifa. But there wasn't any money. Mm -hmm. And so they had to decide, how can we be a great non-traditional university. And they then pursued Ben-Gurion's dream that Israel's future was in the desert. So they talked about this was when desertification was just becoming a global issue. They'd focus on that. They'd fo focus on water. But you and I haven't known a university where this was attempted. The, the university had several million dollars a year for 10 years. Mm -hmm. It was called the Graduate and Research Initiative. Mm -hmm. And it was to oh, raise departments to levels of excellence. There was a lot of pressure from faculty and a few deans, not you. Mm -hmm. Let's bring our least good departments up to mediocrity. And I remember we said, no, we're going to take our very best and keep them the best, and we'll take the next tier down and elevate them. That had almost some of us were run out of town. Yeah. So that's what I was talking about, being a little too innovative, right? <laughs> but actually, today, I think this strategy could work. It really could work. And it's really terrible to throw money at mediocrity and try to get them up to average. The best thing is to throw money at excellent and make them truly distinctive. Right. Any other questions or comments? I think this is a very important topic for all of us. How has uh, corporate America's role in, in the financing of institutions changed? Uh, you know, it's very, corporate America plays in a critical role because you know, and uh, I believe you said you're running the innovation. And why don't you talk about your interaction with the, the community out of that center? Well, two things. Cal State Long Beach is basically following this model. We have Beach 2030 going on now, which is a, a strategic planning process mm -hmm. to, to vision what the campus will be like in 2030. So I think President Connolly has, has done a great job of setting up at least uh, 
the process that mm -hmm. you discuss. Um, as I'm a professor of economics and the director of the innovation for the Institute for Innovation and Entrepreneurship. And so that is trying to create a more entrepreneurial spirit and culture at the university, partnering with the city and um, I guess the business infrastructure in town, like the business improvement districts, et cetera. So we are trying to fill the gap where there's no state funding, where there's extracurricular activities for students so that when they graduate, they have opportunities to open their own businesses here in Long Beach. It supports the 10-year uh, economic development blueprint of the city. Um, so it's a, a strategic partnership Excellent. of the private sector, the government, city government, and the university. So I think you get a very good glimpse of how the corporate sector is interacting. And so I'll tell you this, at, uh, at Irvine, every unit of the campus has an external advisory board that is gifted because we have wonderful community business leaders on those boards. They're bringing to the university the needs of the corporate community. They're influencing our curriculum. They're supporting scholarships. They're supporting research. We have a, a technology innovation program on the campus where faculty members who are doing some research that has applications or tied in with the business community, where businesses come to the center saying, we could use some more research in area X. Can we have some faculty members help? And so the corporate community is playing a very, very important role. They're not running the university, but they're helping advise it. So I guess what I'm wondering is how much have they contributed to the financial? Quite a bit. Yeah, they are. So they're, uh, usually their foundations are, con are contributing, not the, directly the company, their foundations. But then it's usually uh, private contributions from leaders on those corporate, in the corporate sector. Okay. Okay. Uh, within the financial aspect, uh, there's been a lot of uh, press or discussions about uh, uh, degree inflation and the impacts that has on uh, uh, causing students to go get more advanced and more advanced degrees. Uh, and then not necessarily get the return on the uh, on that kind of uh, investment. What mm -hmm. what's your take on that? You know, again, I, I think this is a very good question, but it relates back to doing a careful analysis. So yesterday, I gave a talk like this on the campus at Irvine, and a student walked over to me, and she's getting a master's degree in history, and she told me she was interested in going on for a doctorate. And I had a long talk with her about that because she had not looked at the probability of employment. She had not looked at how long it might take her to get a degree in history. And she was turning white by the time we were having this conversation. And she went back and to take a look. So I think it all goes back to what I was suggesting a few minutes ago. Is that advanced degree going to be worth it? Well, you've got to do the analysis. In some cases, it's going to be worth it. In other cases, perhaps not. And I will tell you about uh, when I was still dean at, at Irvine, we had a very serious discussion around the campus when we're prioritizing. And the dean of humanities said, do not support any more doctoral students in history. We're closing down the program until we can actually place the inventory of students we already have. So we were making the decision in an ethical way not to accept students in a program where we felt that it wasn't gonna be useful for them. When I was dean uh, in our MBA program, 
our um, goal at admissions was the following. We would only admit students who, after we did all the analysis of their background and experience and their potential, we would only admit students who we felt we had a 90% chance of placing within 90 days of graduation. Because we felt that was our ethical responsibility. And if it's, we couldn't place a student, if we looked and we, they were willing to pay full freight, we said, no, this isn't good for you and it's not good for us. So I think universities have to react responsibly. And the student has to do a lot more work on whether they're going to pursue that degree. Um, Andy, what this assumes, I think, is that there are people that will get it. Purdue, UC uh, Long Beach, or uh, Cal State Long Beach. But if everybody says, okay, here's the areas of opportunity in the future, cyber terrorism or whatever the five or six things, and everybody pursues those objectives, haven't you regressed to a mean? And it, what happens? So oh, absolutely. This makes yeah. a lot of sense for those who are enlightened, but. <laughs> That's why you have to have your positioning strategy. You've got to figure out what your niche is going to be. Now you're going to do several things that other people are doing for sure. There's got to be one or two things that you can really stand out in. You know, things that you can really rally around that's going to make you unique. So, you know, there are lots of different examples I can give here, but you know, Michael Crow is a good one, right? And Jerry, you and I were talking about this earlier at Arizona State, where I think it was 15 years ago, I can't remember exactly when, when he started a strategy of saying, we're going to make this the largest public university in the world. And they're up to maybe 100,000 students right now. So that's a very unique positioning strategy, you know, because what we're going to do is we're going to do everything and then now he's focused on a whole bunch of areas of distinction. And so we'll see, that's a positioning strategy. Is that going to work? I'm not quite sure, but it's very unique. So there are ways in which universities can also have innovative activity that's rather unique. But I agree, if everybody did the same thing, it'd all be in the same place. Yeah. So, so Andy, just say just a word more about, you mentioned that, that, so when we look for academic leaders in the future, mm -hmm. simply being a leading scholar in one's field is not enough, and that really has been the ticket to these prestigious positions. That's right. So that is why I wrote this book, From Ivory Tower to Glass House. In fact, it dates back to over 30, about 30 years or so ago, when I was a full professor doing my research. I was at the University of Iowa, and a senior faculty member banged on my door, walked into my office, and said, Andy, it is your turn. And I said, my turn for what? He said, to be department chair. And I remember hyperventilating and saying, I don't want to do this. And then he explained that the senior faculty had drawn up a plan to increase this department by a third, a third more faculty. They felt I was the right person to go convince the provost to do it. And I said, okay. And I took it on. I said, I'm going to do this for three years. That's it. And then I'm going to go back to the faculty. But I still remember the first day I walked into the office. I walked into the chair's office, sat down at the desk, I picked up a pen, and then I said to myself, I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> and I looked for a book. I looked for books. I went over to the library, searched. I looked for seminars, workshops, and I ended up relying on an administrative assistant who was extremely gifted to teach me how to do the job. I thought, someday, I will write a book that will help academic leaders. So 30 years go by. I ended up, by the way, that three years turned into over 30 years of academic leadership jobs. But that was fine. But, uh, but times changed. You know, the kinds of things I would have written then are totally different from today. 
So that is why when I wrote this book, the provost at UC Irvine, who is the boss of all the deans, called me over and he said, you know, Andy, I read this book. We need to train our own faculty how to be academic leaders. So would you run a workshop? We'll call it the Provost Leadership Academy. Can you design it and run it? And I did, and it's a full year workshop. Every dean chooses two to three faculty members and they, who have leadership potential. They come into this workshop for a full year. We meet once a month. I bring in other leaders on the campus. It's a very rigorous program. We're in our third year at UC Irvine, and about a third of the folks through it are now in leadership positions, and another third will be soon. And a few people who went through the program said, uh-uh, not for me, which is very, very useful, right? And then UC San Diego called me last year, and they asked me to do the same program for them. And I set it up for them and did the first full day, and then they're doing it now. And UCLA is starting it this fall, and I'm doing it for them in October. So I think what we're doing now, Jerry, is we're training. You know, we're educational institutions, and we never spent any time training ourselves on how to run the university. And now we're starting to do that, and it's great to see. And we have a few copies of uh, Andy's book for, for sale, and he would be happy to autograph them. And so I and think- by the way, if you purchase a copy, the entire proceeds going to go to the aquarium. One, okay. Thank you, and we're gonna, we just doubled the price. <laughs> <laughs> In the spirit of the evening, right? The spirit of the evening. <laughs> thank you, Annie, for a great, great uh, talk. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, thank you all very much. This is great, sir. Thank you.